Well, let's turn in our Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 12, because if I preached to you on the love of God, you'd be here till tomorrow at this time. So maybe we better just do as the Lord commanded us here. 2 Samuel chapter number 12. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse number 1. I'm not going to set the context because I'm going to do that after we read our text. Most of you are already familiar with this. The Bible says in verse number 1, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. There came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for loving us. Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. Our hearts are full of praise and and, and joy and, and, and comfort at the reality of your everlasting, inexhaustible, invincible love. But I pray that as we turn our attention to this present text this morning, that the Holy Spirit would have full right of way to work, to minister, to speak to our hearts, that we might be drawn closer unto Thee. Lord, do real work, real serious business in our hearts and our minds today that You might get the glory and that we might be drawn closer into Your likeness. Lord, we love You and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. To understand Second Samuel chapter number 12, it's really important to understand the context of the previous chapter. We've gotten little glimpses of it mentioned through the message that Nathan delivered unto David. Nathan is a prophet of God and he has been to speak to David concerning this matter. But chapter number 11 really details for us what this matter is all about. What is this that Nathan is speaking about? What is this grave thing that has transpired? If you were to go back, and we won't take the time to read it, but if you were to go back in chapter number 11, you would find that there are three things that bear upon what David is is being spoken to about in chapter number 12. It begins when there was a time, the Bible says, that men went forth to war, and this probably 
probably means that it was springtime. It was time uh, to campaign and to battle. But instead of David going with his men to war, the Bible says that he stayed back in his palace. Can I just stop and say this? Most of the trouble I've got into in my life was because I was somewhere I shouldn't have been in the first place. How many times have you grieved over something you've done and said to yourself, why was I even there in the first place? Why was I even in that place? Hey, we teach it to our children when they're little. I hope we do. We ought to teach it to ourselves as adults. If you stay in the right place, chances are you'll stay out of the wrong stuff. But David is in the wrong place. He's not where God commanded him to be. Instead, he stays back. He doesn't lead his men into battle. Well, he's standing on his balcony one day, and the Bible says he looks out, and he sees a woman by the name of Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the wife of a man named Uriah. Uriah is one of David's mighty men, one of his deepest friends and confidants, one of his personal protectors. And he sees Bathsheba and she is bathing herself on the rooftop. I guess I've heard people argue about whether she should or shouldn't have done it my whole life. I'll just say this. Some people say, well, she was a she was a temptress and a villain. And others say, no, she was a poor little pitiful lamb. All I'm going to say is if you don't want people staring at your naked, don't be bathing on the roof. All right. And if you think she's wrong or you think she's right, that don't matter to me. But I'm just saying you don't want people peeping at you. Don't be bathing on the roof. And so she was up there and she was bathing. And the Bible says that David looked upon her and he lusted after her. He coveted after her. The Bible says he commanded Bathsheba to be brought to the palace. He went in and lay with her. So the first thing we notice, there was a cruel sin that happened in chapter number 11. Uh, For David to do this to his friend, for David to do this to the Lord. By the way, you know, it goes on to say, not that he despised Uriah, because it wasn't that he despised Uriah. It was that he despised the commandment of the Lord. You know, most of the time when we hurt people, it's not because we hate people. It's because we scorn the Word of God. We don't follow what the Word of God commands. And so he commits this cruel sin, this dark stain upon his life and upon his testimony. Well, the Bible tells us that Bathsheba becomes with child. And and now David has a problem. What's he going to do? Her husband is away at war. People will know that it was not Uriah's child. And then even beyond that, you can't tell me, hey, somebody went and commanded her to come to the king. Somebody watched her walk into that palace. Uh, Somebody no doubt was aware of what had happened. So now David is faced with a problem. He can fess up to his sin. He can ask for forgiveness or he can double down. Can I tell you, most of us are just dumb enough to double down. And that's what David did. Uh, He sends a uh, letter to his commander and tells him uh, to when the battle, uh, well actually he first brings Uriah home, uh, tries to get Uriah to spend time with his wife so he can blame the child on Uriah. Uriah is too noble to do that. He instead sleeps outside of David's uh, doorstep and and wants to protect his king. When that doesn't work, uh, the Bible says that uh, David sends a letter to Joab and commands Joab when the battle is at the hottest place to put Uriah up at the front in the uh, deepest, most vicious part of the battle and then to have everyone retreat away and back away so that he can be killed. Can I say not only is there a cruel sin, but there is a cowardly betrayal. Uh, listen, you say, preacher, that's awful. I can't believe he'd do that. Well, you just hang on. What you'll find out is you or I would do it too if we were in the wrong condition. There is a cow. Yeah, listen, there's things you look at. I would have never thought David would have done that, but there's no telling what you'll do if you get in the wrong way. Uh, you and I, we think we're above it. We think we don't have the ability. But the truth is, David was probably twice the Christian that any of us will ever be. And still his life took this sad and tragic turn. This cowardly betrayal takes place. And then we see there was a calculated murder. 
It was carried out exactly like David wished. Uh, Uriah's hand, uh, blood was on David's hands no less than if David himself had held the sword. He murdered his own friend, his own confidant, his own protector, a man so loyal to him that rather than go home when he had been living the hard life of battlefield and war, rather than go home and enjoy the comfort of his wife, he stayed there to protect his king. David, in a moment of rebellion, of blindness to his own iniquity, uh, unable to be reached in any other way. And, you know, I wonder, sometimes God has to get creative to speak to us. Sometimes I'm so dim-witted. Sometimes I'm so ignorant. Sometimes I'm so dull and thick-headed that God has to find creative ways to get my attention. And God does that with David in this passage. Nathan is tasked with delivering God's word to David and showing him the true perpetrator of this sinister crime. He does this through a narration, through a story that is told about this man uh, stealing and slaughtering the lamb of his neighbor. But notice that in verse 7, Nathan zeroes in on who the culprit is. He says to him, David, thou art the man. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. Thou art the man. David was all ready to execute whoever was responsible to this crime until he realized it was him that was responsible for this crime. It was David that had committed this heinous act. He had no one to blame but himself. And you know, the truth of the matter is the same could be said of you and of me. We have a lot of enemies. We live in a day where we have no shortage of enemies. Everybody is everybody's enemy in the day that we're living in. Uh, the, our political landscape has devolved into merely picking sides, drawing a line, and throwing rocks at each other. Every single interaction. People have just plumb lost the ability to talk to each other in the day that we're living in. Uh, we're living in a time, and make no mistake about it, the tyrants that seek to wield control over your life have a vested interest in making you socially inoperable. The last thing they want is people getting together and talking and learning learning who our real enemies are. And as such, we live in a society where we are being controlled by this constant flow and stream of rage, of hate, of of animosity one to another. And most people that I've known whose lives are in pieces, in fact, I'm going to go a step farther. I've never met anybody whose life was in pieces that it was their fault. It's always somebody else. There's an entire cottage industry developed in our society of victimhood, of blaming someone else. I don't think anybody still watches daytime TV, but used to years ago, they were forever having somebody on some kind of sleazy daytime show uh, crying about how it was all somebody else's fault that their life was in pieces. Now you say, preacher, are you saying that people are, are not sometimes abused and created and made into victims? No, I understand that happens in the world that we're living in. I'm not saying that you don't have enemies. I'm saying your greatest enemy is the one that looks back in the mirror at you. I'm saying the real problem in most of our lives is not what everyone else is doing to us, but rather it's what we are doing in our own lives. I want you to think with me for a moment about this. It was our flesh that is our greatest enemy. The book of Romans goes to great detail to describe this reality in our lives. Paul says this in Romans 7, 18, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. He goes on to say in Romans 8, 5, that they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, and they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And he says down in verse 8, that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. 
And then he goes on to say in Galatians chapter 5 that if we walk in the Spirit, we'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And he says in verse 17, the flesh lusteth against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying your worst enemy, your biggest problem, your greatest obstacle is not the person that won't give you your way. It's not a society that won't pave a way for you and grease the tracks. It is not someone that has done you wrong, someone that has been cruel to you. The greatest obstacle you have in your life is you. The one that causes you to sin is not them, it's you. The one that causes unfaithfulness in you is not them, it's you. Uh, The one that covets after things that don't belong to you is not them, it's you. It's you, it's you, it's you. And guess what? For me, it's me. Nathan reveals important things in this passage. And I want you to notice three important moments that we find here. We could basically divide this passage into these three portions. There is first a narrative story and David's response to it. And then there is Nathan's answer back to him as he discloses that he in fact is the cause of all of his heartache and problem. And then finally we see the judgment of God being placed on his life. Don't you wish I was still preaching on the love of God? Notice with me, number one, there is a tragic illustration in this passage. Verse number one, Nathan begins to tell this fascinating story. And we don't necessarily have to recount every detail, but I want you to notice the first couple of verses. It says, He came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city. And as we go on a little further, it becomes apparent who these two men are. One man, the rich man, is David, and the other man is Uriah. He says, The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, denoting that David had many wives and had all that he could wish for at his command. But the poor man had nothing save one one little ewe lamb, which was a picture of his marriage, his relationship to Bathsheba, which he had brought, bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. Three important sober truths that this story illustrates. Let me say number one. You know, the first thing he talks about is the jealousy of the flesh. Uh, have you ever noticed I've got two boys and, and they're starting to get to an age where they're learning how to fight real well. And if there's ever an Olympic sto- sport of fussing, they're going to, they're gold medalists. No question. And, uh, I've learned this and you've probably seen it with your own children. The thing that your child wants more than anything is not a new bicycle. The thing that your child wants more than anything is not that new video game system that they came out with. The thing that your child wants more than anything is not the things they've dog-eared in the Sears catalog. I say that for the older generation. Or the things that they have liked on their Amazon list, all right? Can I tell you what your child wants more than anything? They want what that other kid has. Don't matter what it is. If it's a cardboard box, it's the greatest thing that's ever been. If it's broke down and not as good as the toy that you just bought them, it does not matter. They want what they cannot have. I tell you that in that we have in germ formation something that is very telling about the human condition. You know what your flesh wants more than anything? What it can't have. Here's David. He has wives. He has beautiful wives. Abigail herself was known for her beauty, but all of his wives, we assume, I mean, kings don't marry ugly girls. He's probably married to beautiful women. He has concubines. He has everything that he could possibly want, everything that he could possibly wish. But the one thing he wants more than anything is what another man has. That's called covetousness. 
Can I just tell you something about your flesh? Your flesh is never going to be satisfied. We think to ourselves, well, if I can just partake in this sin, if I can just experience this thing, if I can just do this uh, crime, whatever it is that we're engaging in, we think, well, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be good, then I'll be placated, then I'll be happy. But you're deluding yourself. You're lying to yourself. You're deceiving yourself. Your flesh is never going to be satisfied. You get a hold of that thing, you're just going to want the next thing. Uh, Satisfaction, peace, contentment is found only in the person of Christ. The flesh cannot be nourished. The flesh cannot be satisfied. It cannot be contented. It will always want what another person has. By the same token, can I say, if something is put off limits in our life, you ever notice how much appeal forbidden fruit has? Is that not one of the key uh, truths that is found in the story of the Garden of Eden? A whole garden full of fruit. And Eve wants the only one that she cannot have. If you try to nourish that, if you try to placate that, if you try to satisfy that, you'll find it's like a baby's pacifier. It'll give you something to do, but you won't get anything out of it. It won't give you any real satisfaction. It will placate you for a moment, for a brief glimpse, for a time, but it will not satisfy you ultimately. He speaks of the jealousy of the flesh in verses 1 through 3. And then look at verse 4. The Bible says this, there came a traveler under the rich man. I preached on this a long time ago. I ain't going to preach on it again. But let me just stop and say, you better watch for the traveler. You know who the traveler is? That's temptation. I, I promise you, your flesh, there will always be temptation coming by to visit. There will always be occasion. There will always be opportunity. There will always be a way for you to do the wrong thing. If you're waiting for it to be convenient to do the right thing and inconvenient to do the wrong thing, I'm sorry to tell you, that's never going to happen. It will always be convenient. The devil spends all of his days just making sure you have opportunity to do the wrong thing. You know, the sad truth is we live in a world that is so wicked and so depraved that opportunity is seen as an excuse for the performance of that thing. I can't tell you the numbers of times that I've heard even Christians say things like, well, if God didn't want me to do it, he wouldn't have put it in front of me. Has it ever dawned on you it might not have been God put it in front of you in the first place? I mean, hey, that's a dumb thing. Hey, I was driving down the road and there's a bridge. I mean, you know, if God didn't want me to drive off of it, He wouldn't have put a bridge there. You with me? It is that dumb. It is that dumb of a perspective. The flesh will always want what it cannot have. That traveler came by under the rich man. And the Bible says this, he spared to take of his own flock. Isn't that always amazing? We always spare our flesh. It's amazing how we'll persecute the spirit to spare the flesh. It's amazing what we can do without spiritually, but we can't do without physically. Can I just, and I I don't know, I'm going to get to preaching. If we really go off the rails, I'll start talking about the love of God. You'll start worshiping again. But let me see if I can get this preached this morning. It's amazing the things you can do without. It's amazing. You think, well, I can do without church. Can you? Well, I can do without reading my Bible. Can you? Well, I can do without prayer. Can you? Hey, listen, can you do without that Whopper? Hey, can you do without that air conditioning? Honesty. I appreciate honesty. Hey, listen, can you do without that television? It's amazing the things we can do without and the things we can't do without. One of the things I love about going up church camp uh, is that it reminds us what we can do without. And it reminds us what we cannot do without. You know what church camp is all about? It's all about taking things that you thought you couldn't do without and taking it away from you and taking things you thought you didn't need and showing you how much you truly need them. 
is we get our priorities mixed up. That traveler comes by and we don't, we, we always spare of the flesh. When temptation comes by and we have a choice, we never consider there is a spiritual price to pay for engaging in that activity, whatever it is. But we always somehow set that to the side and we won't spare of our flesh. He wouldn't spare of his own flock and of his own herd. But the Bible says this, he took to dress for the wayfaring man that was coming unto him, he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. Notice not only the jealousy of the flesh, but notice the cruelty of the flesh. Now, we don't have to belabor this point. In fact, is the substance of what's being said here. Rather than take of his own flock, he would take and steal this one man's only lamb. Can I tell you something? Hey, listen, when our flesh is... is, And I hope I can phrase this right. Listen, we don't ever want to give up our lamb We always want to make his lamb suffer. We don't ever want to give up our lamb. We've all got lambs. We've all got sacrificial things in our life. We've all got things we can do without. We've all got things that we have convinced ourselves are too important to do without, but in fact, we'd probably be better off without them. We never want to do without those things. Instead, we want to put that lamb back on the table again. You know, the cruelty of the matter is that we, after all God's done for us, would indulge our flesh at the pain, expense, and sorrow of the precious Lamb of God. That's how cruel... Let me tell you, your flesh does not care that Christ died for you. Your flesh does not care that you're going to pay a price for what you do. Your flesh is a cruel taskmaster. It will only ever cry out and cry out and cry out for more and bigger and better. It will never be satisfied. And it is deeply cruel. You'd be amazed what you'd do if you operate in the flesh. You'd be amazed who you'd hurt. Hey, listen, there's no telling how many families are busted into a thousand pieces because somebody let their flesh get control of them. No telling how many children whose lives have been warped, twisted, and devastated because somebody let their flesh dominate them. No telling how many people have been impoverished and and have been uh, had all their livelihood taken away from because somebody wouldn't let their flesh be subjugated. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying, you think you wouldn't, but you would, because your flesh would. In your flesh dwelleth no good thing, and you are foolish and naive if you believe you don't have it within you to do the same heinous things. You have bought and swallowed the devil's lie if you think it is beyond you to commit not just literally the things that David did, but any number of things that you would think unimaginable. Your flesh is a cruel Thing And then look at verse 5, man. This is interesting. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Notice not only the jealousy of the flesh and the cruelty of the flesh, but notice the hypocrisy of the flesh. David's outraged. I mean, he's just plumb beside himself. He is scandalized that anybody would do this. All the while completely blind to his own far more dark and sinister crimes. Can I tell you the real nefarious thing about your flesh? It will be outraged at the behavior of others while completely ignoring the behavior of yourself. You know why you need preaching? Because you won't tell yourself the truth. You know why you need the Word of God? You won't tell yourself the truth. That's why you need it. Because you, I mean, it's... It is almost a remarkable thing to see the blindness with which people can operate. It's amazing to see the levels to which people can so paper over their own sins while taking the magnifying glass 
out to others. Whenever Christ rebuked this notion of ignoring the mote in your own eye and seeing the splinter that is in the eye of your neighbor, he wasn't suggesting that anybody don't remove what's in their eye. What he was saying is, how is it possible that you can notice that, but you can't notice this? How is it possible that you can see it in them, but not see it in you? And you know how wicked your flesh is? Your flesh is so wicked, it would sentence everyone else to death for doing half of what it itself is doing. That's how wicked your flesh, that's how sinister your flesh is, David. He's angry, man. He's, he's enraged. He wants something done about this. And don't we always want something done about everybody else's sins? I remember having somebody come to me years ago and they were complaining about something somebody else does. Every once in a while, I mean, I've been at this 12 years. Every few years, someone complains. It does happen. And, uh, they were upset over something that somebody else did. And they, they came, and I wouldn't share all the details, but they came and they said, Preacher so-and-so and this and that. And I said, well, yeah, I understand what you mean. I've, I've had a conversation with them, but I've not seen any growth from that. And, you know, I, I'm just praying for them. They said, what are you going to do about it? They always get this real serious tone when they do it, and they kind of lean in like it's a secret, like we're making a plan, you know. What are you going to do about it? And I said, what do you want me to do about it? They hate that question. They ain't thought that far ahead. You don't understand. They said, they said, I don't know. What do you think we should do about it? I said, well, I don't know. I've talked to him about it. And I prayed for him. What do you think we should do about it? And they just stared at me. And finally, I said this. Well, I'll tell you what. I, we'll church them. I think that'd be the best thing. We'll just tell them they're not welcome here anymore. We're going to break fellowship. No, 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 preacher. No, 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 no. Now, don't do that. I said, well, why not? Me and you, we'll go right now. We'll sit down. We'll have a meeting with them. They need to know that you have aught with them. We'll sit down. You can share with them that your heart is burdened about this. We'll give them an opportunity to repent, to get things right. And then if they want, we'll bring it before the church. And, and we'll just declare, oh, no, 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 preacher. Oh, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Here's the reality. They wanted something done. And when you say, well, what would you like done about that? Well, something. Somebody ought to do something. You know, you can win political office in this country by just saying somebody ought to do something. The flesh, man. I'm telling you, the flesh. He was angry. Something ought to be done about this. But he was not short on a plan. Here's what he said ought to be done. This is instructive. As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. Now, I, I don't know about you. Uh, I don't know what sheep stealing, what the sentence is. It might be like horse, you know, stealing. They might hang you. I don't know. But that seems a little bit outlandish to me. He says he shall surely die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold. going to be hard for a dead man to do that. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because he had no compassion, no mercy, no pity, we're going to go out and kill him. Not only are we going to kill him, we're going to take his lambs away from him and give him back to this man. You know what's interesting? David, unbeknownst to himself, says some amazing things about how we deal with the flesh. You, you say, preacher, how do I deal with that flesh? Well, you've got to kill it. I don't mean committing suicide. I don't mean self-harm. But I mean you've got to mortify self. David was on to something. Then he said this, you've got to put the lamb back in its right place. You've got to restore the lamb that was taken, that shouldn't have been taken, you've got to put the lamb back in its place. But he says, not just that, you need more of the lamb than was there in the first place. And here's why you did that, because you had no pity, and because you had no concern, and because you had no integrity. You know, your flesh is a hypocritical thing. 
you'll see problems in everybody else. That's why we need the mirror of the Word of God. You know, funny thing about it, we can walk around all day. I'll tell my wife all the time, I'll say, you're so beautiful. And she'll say, no. And I'll say, what do you know about it? You can't see you. I can see you. You don't get to decide. I get to decide whether you're beautiful or not. You only see yourself occasionally when you walk by a mirror. I look at you all day. I'm the one that gets to decide whether you're beautiful or not. You know, funny thing about it, we can go our whole life and never look at ourselves. Your flesh has a real interest in you not looking at yourself. That's why we need this mirror of the Word of God to shine the image right back at us because we'll never see it otherwise. See, the the reality is this thing of going to church and hearing the Word of God and being around other believers, it ain't just about learning your Bible verses. It's about giving God an opportunity to speak to you, to show that mirror up to you and to show you what's wrong in your own life. Because your flesh won't do it. Your flesh is hypocritical, rotten, low down, filthy, no good. And it will never tell you the truth. It will always color things in a better light. I see that there is a tragic illustration. But then notice there is a truthful confrontation. I don't know, man. I don't know if you chewed gum, but I'm betting David swallowed it whenever Nathan said this. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. He minces no words. He pulls no punches. He says, David, here's the truth of the matter. I've told you this story. I don't know about you. You know, this happened to David several times throughout his ministry. woman of Tekoa did this same thing to him. If I'd been David, I'd have been nervous about stories by the end of my life. People had a habit, and maybe that's because that's the only way that God could deal with him is by trying to cast things in the light of another person and say, what if somebody else did this? Hey, it'd be good sometimes for us to say, how would I feel about somebody else living the way I live? Hey, how how would I feel about the preacher if he was as faithful to church as I am? How would I feel about the Sunday school teacher if if he knew as much about the Word of God as I know? How how would I feel about the evangelist if if he shared the gospel as little as I do? Sometimes it'd help us. Oh, that's okay. I already got you here. Let's just go ahead and settle in and preach. Sometimes it would help us to say, would I accept this in other people's hands? Would I accept this? Hey, that's what God said in the book of Malachi. He said, should I accept this at your hand? He said, offer it now unto your governor. Offer it unto your master. He said, you bring unto me that which is halted and that which is maimed and that which is lame and that which is blind and you offer it to me for sacrifice. He said, give it to your governor. See if he'll accept it. Give it to your master. See if he'll accept it. Why should I accept this at your hand? Hey, it's amazing, man. We can, we can sure find fault in other folks. Nathan says, thou art the man. Notice a few things here. Notice, number one, the preacher that was enlisted. This prophet by the name of Nathan, his name means gift. And you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the New Testament gift that we have for ourselves. Acts chapter 238 says this, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4, the Holy Ghost is called the heavenly gift. You know who the preacher is that's enlisted in your life? Hey, there may be times that God uses a person, uh, but uh, more often than not, God has somebody better than just a person. He has himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. You know who the preacher is that points the finger on the sin in your life? Uh, He may use me. He may use an evangelist. He may use your Sunday school teacher. But it's the Holy Ghost that's saying, Thou art the man. Uh, We get awful knotted up sometimes at whoever the preacher or evangelist is. Well, how how dare they? Listen, we don't dare nothing. We open this book and preach it. And if it hits you, you take that up with God. I promise I ain't been reading your mail. And I love you. Listen, if you were the only person here, I'd still preach to you. But guess what? I didn't craft this with you in mind. Ah, We're already this deep in. 
I, listen, I didn't, I didn't get up here and craft this with you in mind. Could be it's somebody else ringing your bell and not me. Who was the preacher? The preacher was Nathan. He was the one that was enlisted. He reminds us of the Holy Spirit. Notice the person that was responsible. Nathan said, David, it's you. You're the one. No one else to blame, David. You are the one that has done this very thing. We've spent a lot of time trying to make someone else the man in this story. Well, is it Bathsheba? Well, Bathsheba's going to have to answer to God for however it was. It be, be she innocent or be she guilty? Well, maybe it was Joab. Joab carried out the order. And certainly Joab was a, was a carnally minded man. There are other people that no doubt had to be party and privy to this conspiracy. But let's just lay the blame where God lays it. God says it was David. And you know, often in our lives we'll say, well now preacher, this other person was involved and then there was this person and then there was this person, and then there was that person. But the truth is, you're going to answer for you one day when you stand before God. So the question that really concerns you is not who else is to blame, but are you to blame? I see the person that was responsible. Why did this happen? Well, notice first off the privilege that was despised. Verse 7 says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. God says, look at all I've done for you. You know, your flesh is never going to be grateful. Here's what I'm getting at, by the way, with all this, is that you can't operate in the flesh. You've got to operate in the Spirit. Your flesh is not grateful, not to God for what He's done. Your flesh is the one that yawns at Calvary. Your flesh is the one that is uninterested in what God is doing in your life. And you know, the truth is, when we sin, when we yield to our flesh, what we're really saying is, God, I don't care what all you've done for me. I'd rather allow myself the right of way in my life. I'd rather nourish myself. I'd rather gratify myself. Hey, listen, we gratify ourselves because of a lack of gratitude towards Him. David, all that God had done for David. You know, we, we read the story and oh, how wonderful David was and how, how awful Saul was. That's only because Saul chose himself and David chose the Lord. There wasn't nothing intrinsically better about David than about Saul. In fact, I think it could be said that David committed more heinous things in his life that we have record of than even Saul did. Why was one exalted? Why was the other rejected? It was not because one was good and one was bad. It's because one went with the Lord and one rejected Him. The truth is, your life, if it counts for anything, it's only going to be because you go with the Lord and because you let Him have His will done in your life. I see the privilege that was despised. I see the potential that was forfeit. Verse 8, he says, If that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Such and such, God says. What is such and such? Things you can't even imagine. He says, you know, if it's really that you lack for anything, David, I would have given it to you. You didn't commit this sin because I, I shorted you somehow. Isn't it amazing how we'll indulge our flesh? We'll say, well, now, I deserve partaking this sin because this happened to me and that happened to me. and I've been having a rough time and this and that. And, you know, it's understandable. And, you know, I mean, even Superman's got to take off his cape like you're Superman. <laughs> but, you know, the truth of the matter is this. If we needed it, God would have given it to us. God's not withholding things from our life because he's bored or petty. Imagine how much greater David's life could have been. David, had he not committed this, he could have built the temple. 
He could have been the one that had seen that glorious coronation on the day when the glory of God filled that place. Imagine how his family could have been different had this not happened. I think it's fair to say that a dynasty that could have reigned for millennia could have been built out of his lineage and out of his blood, but his flesh limited all of that. You know, there's no telling. You only notice what you're gaining when you indulge your flesh, but you don't notice what you're giving up. No telling what God could do in your life if you'd let the Lord have His will and way. And then I see the problem that was diagnosed, verse 9. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in His sight? God uses even stronger language later on. He says that He has despised him uh, when He took Uriah uh, to be His wife. You say, preacher, what is that? Well, the real problem was this. The real problem was not as much with how, how much David thought of himself. It really came down to how little he thought of God. You know why you let your flesh have its way in your life? It's not because you think so much of your flesh. It's not because you trust your flesh so much. It's because you trust God so little. He tells you it's going to bring sorrow, heartache, and pain into your life. Is he a liar? Now, let me go ahead and tell you. Hey, listen, there's times I sin. There's times I indulge my flesh. There's times that in the weakness and infirmity of my brokenness that I do the wrong things just like you do. And it's true for me like it's true for you. The reason that we do that. I mean, I thought God told us that would bring sorrow and heartache. Do we really think he's a liar? You see, God's word has everything that's needed to address the problem of our flesh. It's really a question of whether we'll believe God or not. He despised, rejected the commandment of the Lord. God had given these commandments for the benefit and blessing of David's life, but instead he rejected them and he allowed his flesh to govern him. I see a truthful confrontation. And finally, and I'll be done, uh, there is a terrible condemnation. Verse number 10, and really the, this to the end of the chapter, verse 10 through 14, the, the judgment of God could really be summed up in five phrases. But notice what it says, verse number 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. You know, the first thing is this, the sword. Your flesh will always bring the sword into your life. What was the sword? The sword was a symbol of judgment. Uh, the Bible tells us that God exalts the humble. He abases the proud. When we walk contrary to God, God will walk contrary to us. And God says to David, David, I'm going to have to send judgment into your life because you've done this. There is a child that would have been or was born as a result of this interaction. And, and that child would die. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things we don't understand and can't understand about what transpired and this isn't any commentary on anything that anyone else has experienced except simply to say this. We have it on the authority of the Word of God that the reason that David's child died was because of his sin. Now think about it. That child would have been the fruit, the, the, the joyful fruit of this union. And you can imagine in David's mind, I mean, David obviously envisioned having a family with Bathsheba. This was not some, some one night stand, some passing fling, because he takes Bathsheba in to be his wife. And you know how deceived our flesh is. He probably envisioned a happy, glorious family that he would have with this woman. And it all turned to ash right in front of him. Can I tell you something that your flesh won't tell you? That thing that you're grabbing for, you can't hold on to. God won't let you. The sword will enter your life and pry it away. 
We always think, we have these deluded ideas. Well, preacher, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be amazing. This and that. If I indulge in this and if I engage in this. And sometimes the fantasy we have is, well, preacher, if I engage in this, it won't hurt me. And, and it won't affect my life. And it won't, it won't destroy my life. But listen, I'll tell you something your flesh won't. The sword always follows the flesh. Always. Well, that was the picture in the Old Testament of circumcision, was that all you can do with the filthiness of the flesh is cut it away. It cannot be sanctified and it cannot be renovated in any way. It has to be done away with in order for there to be cleanness. And in your life, listen, if you let your flesh have its way, then the sword will have to come and cut out that which is unpleasing to God. I, I would say the first phrase is the sword. The second is this phrase, the sorrow. Verse 11. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. And by the way, that was explicitly fulfilled during the rebellion of Absalom. You know what God's saying? Not only is there going to be judgment, but you're going to be miserable. There's going to be things that are taken from you. There's going to be sorrow and suffering. Uh, We sometimes envision to ourselves, well, if this doesn't work out, I'll be back to square one. No, you're going to be back to like triangle negative 300. You say, preacher, it can't get worse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it can. You say, but preacher, if I get involved with this, I'll just ask God's forgiveness and repent of it. We'll get to this in a moment. But that's not even talking about all the suffering and sorrow it will bring into your life in the meantime and then following. I would say it could be summarized by the sword, by the sorrow. But then notice verse 12, by the son. He says, for thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Your flesh. You ever heard the phrase, you can't hide money? You ever heard that? Are you all okay? Are we all right this morning? Are you okay? You, you awake? You with me this morning? You ever heard the phrase, you can't hide money? Anybody? Am I, am I from an alien planet? You know what it means? It means somebody has money, they're going to show it off. Can I tell you something? Your flesh can't hide sin. Be sure your sin will find you out. You think you can hide it. You tell yourself you're going to hide it. You tell yourself nobody will find out. First problem, somebody already knows about it. Number one, God knows about it. But then it's interesting, all the people, and you can envision in David's life, all this is spinning out of control. But he somehow thinks he's going to be able to keep it quiet. Somehow thinks, somehow, somebody will not find out about it. I remember a preacher years ago made this statement. You know, he sent that letter by the hand of Joab. And, you know, I wonder whatever happened to that letter. We're never told what happened with it. Do you know, for the rest of his life, Joab, he's a little bit too big for his britches. He would say things to David that a general wouldn't say to his king. He would do things that a general wouldn't do towards his king. Could it be maybe Joab hung on to that letter? Could it be maybe, hey, listen, here's the truth of the matter. You can't hide your sin. You think you can. You think you got it buried deep. You think like Achan, you've got it buried somewhere nobody will find it. God already knows where it's at, and he's actively working to expose it. I I see the sun here, and what shame the flesh can bring to our lives. Then I see the solution, verse 13. Man, I love this. David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord hath also, also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. You know what the solution is? Repent. Repent. Confess it to God. Ask forgiveness. 
David does this in just a short phrase, although if you're a student of the Bible, you can read Psalms 51 and learn what his heart was saying in that moment because later on he would pin down what his heart was really saying to God. And and it is more in-depth than just this simple phrase. But I'm glad he didn't have to say all that before God forgive him. He just said, Lord, I have sinned. I have done wrong. He admitted it. He confessed it. He asked forgiveness of it. God immediately forgave him. You know, the only solution is to ask forgiveness. Isn't it amazing how many times we think we can just wait out God on this whole sin thing? Just run out the clock. And it's all because of pride. And oftentimes it's all because we want to give occasion for the flesh to indulge in it again later on. We don't want to admit it to God. But let me tell you something. There's no way around it. If you want to get right with God, you're going to have to get right with God. Oh, okay. If you want to beat... No, I'll try these people over here. Y'all ain't give me nothing. If you want to be right with God, you're going to have to get right with God. You're going to have to deal with it. I like y'all better. I'll just stay over here. You're going to have to get it right with God. You're going to have to bring it to the Lord. There's no end around around this. You can't jump around it. There's no shortcut. You're going to have to deal with it if you want it to be made right. I see the solution, but then finally, I hate to have to preach this, but I'm going to. Verse 14. I see the scars. How be it? How be it? Because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. I wish I could tell you that you can ask forgiveness and it all goes away. The problem between you and God will go away. But the problems caused by the problems between you and God that live and dwell in this world and realm, they may not go away. I don't say this to overburden anybody. Hey, listen, I'm glad for the grace of God. But I, I, I learned several years ago. I mean, I, listen, I, I love our old people. And you say, well, preacher, who's old? Not you. Not you. Somebody else. I love our old people. And, and I don't. And there was time I'd feel a little bit bad about preaching something like this. Because I think, well, you know, if people have made mistakes, they've done things wrong. I, I don't want to grieve them when there's nothing can be done about it. But then God smote my heart and said, you know, preacher, you got some young people there, too. That ain't gone down that road yet. And so listen, if, if, if you're older and you got a few scars and this might, this might lay you down with some burdens, have a little grace for a moment. Let me preach this to our young people because they need to hear that some things don't go away. There are some scars left. There are some things that you get involved in. You don't unsee. You don't undo. You don't untangle. It's done. It can bury you. It can, it can burn you. It can leave things in your life that can never go away. Thank God that one day heaven's going to fix all that. But for some things, it's going to take heaven to fix it. Because you're going to have to live with the scars of what you've done in your life. Man, there's people that have wrecked their homes and have said, I'd give anything if I could put it back. People that have, have wrecked their children said, I'd give anything if I could go and do it over again. I'm burdened, man. Some of us, man, we're raising kids. If we're going to do it right, now's when we're going to do it right. If we're going to do it wrong, now's when we're going to do it wrong. We're doing it right now. And there's some things and some choices we make we don't get back. We don't get that time with our kids back. We don't get, we, we don't get that season of our marriage back. We, we, we don't get that, that time of our health and ability to serve the Lord. We don't get that back. There's some scars that will bear the rest of our life if we allow our flesh to dominate us. So here's the truth. We can go through outrage at everybody else's offenses. We ought to do something about that. We ought to do something about that. No, we ought to do something about us. If everybody will do something about themselves, 
It'd be amazing what God could do. So instead of you trying to be Nathan, why don't you listen to the Nathan that's in your heart as he points the finger towards you and say, now, Lord, what is it in my life that needs to be addressed? Let's bow together this morning. Musicians going to come and play. The altar's open. You're welcome to come this morning if God has dealt with your heart. I'm not going to say a hundred things. I'm not going to coax you. God either dealt with you and you're going to be obedient to him or he did not deal with you, in which case pray for everybody else or he dealt with you and you're not going to obey. But it's going to be on you, whatever you choose to do. Thou art the man, your choice. Thou art the person. What about you this morning? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.